from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Good evening, everyone. And thank you for your patience. Good evening, we're ready to start. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm Ron Goldman. I'm a resident of this community, Jamaica Planko Housing. Uh, I'm also the executive director of the Circumcision Resource Center, which is a nonprofit educational organization, and author of two books on circumcision one, Circumcision the Hidden Trauma, and Questioning Circumcision A Jewish Perspective. Uh, I'm very pleased to have our special guest uh, here this evening, Eliunger Sagarin. Um, Eli grew up in the same town I grew up in, Brookline, Massachusetts. At the age of 13, he moved to Israel with his family, and uh, his family uh, was a Orthodox Jewish family. Uh, they moved to Israel, and he lived there until he was 19, and then um, studied uh, medicine for three years, wanted to be a doctor, and then decided he'd follow his dream to be a filmmaker. Uh, so he went uh, back to school in uh, Chicago, earned a couple of degrees, and he is a uh, writer, uh, cinematographer, narrator, editor, um, filmmaker, and uh, I'm very pleased to introduce him tonight, Eli Unger Sargon. Please give him a warm welcome. Thanks so much, Ron, and thank you guys for your abiding patience with all of my nonsense tonight. I really apologize for that. Um, so this is how, how things are going to go, and I'm really happy that we ended up being able to hook up the laptop because I'll be able to show you a trailer for my next film. But we're going to uh, look at, um, we're going to watch Cut, which is 70 minutes long, and um, after the film we're going to have a panel discussion. Uh, Ron Goldman is going to be on the panel with myself, and I'm so happy to announce that my friend uh, Jeff Helmreich, um, who is on the second episode of the podcast, uh, where we had a fascinating discussion about the ethics of circumcision. Uh, he's also going to be on the panel. So Ron, uh, the psychologist, Ronald Goldman, PhD, and Jeff Helmreich, um, who is a doctoral student in philosophy right now. Is that correct? Great. And so we'll have a panel discussion for about 10, 15 minutes, depending on how it goes. We'll introduce ourselves, talk a little bit about the film, and then open it up for questions and answers. All right. Um, so thanks once again for your patience with all of our technical glitches, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I wanted to, uh, to get this uh, panel discussion started. If um, the panelists could introduce themselves. Sure. Uh, I attended a Jewish ritual circumcision in the 80s. I felt some reluctance in attending, but I felt an obligation as a family event. Uh, to attend. Uh, I have uh, for a long time been very sensitive to the feelings of children and that's part of my reason for my reluctance. So I attended this ritual and um, when the cutting started the baby was crying like I didn't know a baby could cry that loud, that long, or with ex expressing that much agony. Uh, he continued for over 20 minutes uh, like I said, I can't imagine a baby crying with any more power than what I heard uh, at this circumcision. Uh, the parents were crying. Uh, I was extremely uncomfortable. 
uh, I could sense that other people were uncomfortable. Um, I also learned later that the mother of the child did not take any pain medications during labor. And through subsequent research, I learned that when a mother does take pain medications, it gets into the fetus, and that has an effect on how responsive a newborn baby can be uh, to his experience. As the, the pain medications in the baby system tend to dull his ability to respond. And since that's common practice for uh, mothers in labor to receive pain medications, it's common practice for babies not to be as responsive as they might otherwise be. And there's, again, there's literature on this. Uh, and uh, so the studies say that it could take at least a week. And of course, uh, Jewish circumcisions are done on the eighth day. So it's quite likely that uh, if infants aren't responding, uh, in the manner that I saw, for example, uh, one possibility may be that the infants are still being affected by the pain medications in their system. So again, I, I was uh, uh, distressed about this and, uh, and wanted to learn more about it and uh, subsequently did a lot of research and writing. So that, that's uh, Ron's background. Uh, Jeff, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about yourself, how you came to this, and what you're doing here. Sure. Um, I haven't had the same level of personal experience with it, not at least since I was about eight days old. I have uh, grown up with uh, immensely involved in Jewish tradition and became captivated by a second tradition, which is the tradition of ethical philosophy, moral philosophy, uh, in the later part of my life. Uh, and that combines, in my particular case, with legal education. I'm now getting, <coughs> excuse me, a PhD in philosophy, and in particular legal philosophy at UCLA, and doing a program here at Harvard University at the uh, law school, the program on negotiation. And uh, my experience with these two traditions has often led me to confront cases where they seem to be at loggerheads, where Jewish tradition seems to run counter to what we might call ordinary ethics or our sense of everyday morality. And by everyday, I don't mean trivial. I mean deeply fundamental principles of morality. Uh, I don't believe these traditions are ultimately in conflict, but I think that it's impossible to ignore cases where they at least seem on their face to be in conflict. And I've moderated several panels on this and have written some things on it, but only recently, in part thanks to the provocations of my co-panelists here, Eliana Sargon, uh, became drawn to the topic of circumcision in particular as just a, a perfect and unavoidable example of this kind of confrontation. Thanks, Jeff. And you guys just learned a whole lot about me, so I won't bore you with any more details. But I would like at this point to open uh, up for questions and answers. And I guess what, we're, what we'll do is we'll pass the microphone around. Just be careful to not hold it too close to your mouth, because then we'll blast out everyone's ears. Um, so you got one? Mm -hmm. Um, well, first off, I, I just want to say that that film was amazing. And I don't know if you could see, like, sparks coming out of my hair right now, because my brain was just, like, all over the place, and I had all of these thoughts for 70 minutes. Um, and my, I, I studied human sexuality, and I'm really, and now I work in public health, and I'm really interested in how we use the public health argument and HIV. 
um, to justify circumcision. And also what your father said about how that argument keeps on changing with whatever new disease comes along. Um, and I'm also really interested in the overall idea of wellness and how sexual pleasure is a part of that. And oftentimes when we teach about sexuality and prevention, um, we forget to go back to the basic question of why people have sex in the first place. And sexual pleasure becomes completely absent, um, which I think is an injustice to students in a classroom, whatever age they are. Um, and I was really intrigued by the fact that a, a large part of this film, you know, touched on that angle. And not only did it touch on that angle, you had a lot of visual representations of like an erect penis and showing the difference between a foreskin and... Um, and so my question for you is why did you choose to talk about sexual pleasure so explicitly when it's not something that's easy to do? Um, or I don't know if you actually asked that question from the people that you interviewed or if you wanted to go in that angle. And um, my other question for you is just about your choice to use those visual images. And if you've gotten any negative feedback about using them. Sure, those are great questions. Um, so first of all, I think that the sexual pleasure side of this issue um, is really important. And I think that um, even people who are familiar with the subject and active on the subject sometimes don't emphasize it enough um, because it's um, sort of another thing that's really difficult to talk about when you're already talking about a difficult subject. Um, Jeff and I uh, had a conversation a few months ago about the philosophy and the ethics of uh, circumcision. One of the points that he raised that I think is, is really important is that um, we don't have the philosophical or scientific tools to really um, talk about this in a fine-grained way. And that makes it very difficult to talk about comparisons, which is why you'll notice that in the film, when I started branching off into that subject matter, I sort of started with a disclaimer that I didn't think this was prone to scientific inquiry. And what, what I meant was what Jeff articulated much more well than I did in my film, which is that that the tools that we have about the content of experience um, from a philosophical perspective and from an empirical perspective are just lacking. And so you end up fumbling around with metaphors and you start talking about Mozart symphonies and uh, trying to make analogies to other senses. But, and I still feel this way, having said all that, um, how it's so important and, and from an ethical perspective it's such an important component of this issue to me because that's the lifelong consequence of this practice. That's what men have to live with. It's not just, and, and this is an important component of the ethical problem of circumcision, it's not just the pain that the infant's going through, it's not just the trauma and the psychological consequences and all of that. It's that we have to live with this damage to our nervous system, specifically the sexual consequences of that damage. And so for me, that was actually a central part of the ethical argument against this practice that I found most compelling. Um, and when I understood that, um, and I realized that I, you know, I'm talking about penises here, um, it was just obvious to me that I needed to show it. Um, 
And I knew that, and early on I got into some trouble. Um, a lot of the shots of the penis in the film were shot on 16 millimeter film. And the reason is because uh, at the time, the, most of the film is shot on a format called Mini-DV, which doesn't have a very high resolution. And I was looking at um, sort of differences that I felt required a higher resolution, so I shot these shots on actual 16mm film. I sent it off to a lab in um, Batavia, Illinois. And because it's film and the nature of film, what you have to do first is process it. So they don't know what's on the film until they process it. But after they had processed it, they actually refused to transfer the material to digital so that I could edit it because they were in such a small community and they thought that if the word got out that they were, you know, um, transferring, um, you know, pornographic, quote unquote, material that they could get into a lot of trouble with their local community or some, some such excuse. I'm not sure. I have to find a different lab. So that was an initial sort of um, response. I also know from some inside information, you know, we submitted this film to festivals when it came out in 2007. We spent thousands of dollars in festival submissions and we got rejected um, from a lot of them. And um, you, know, you, you hardly ever know why, but there was one festival that I got uh, some inside information about why it was rejected and it, it said that, uh, they said that um, our film hadn't passed the decency committee. Um, which I think is interesting that film festivals have such things, but that's another story. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, it, I think it's been a challenge. Um, we'll probably never get aired on uh, television. Um, right. Um, I just have a, just two quick comments. Um, first, I, I just wanted to say thank you for including the topic of uh, female sexual pleasure. Um, from that one woman who was the wife of. Okay. And um, the other thing is that in the very beginning, somebody talked. Somebody said, you know, why the penis? And you know, we and they talked about you know spreading the seed and how you know this is your future progeny and stuff like that. And when the foreskin is so much a part of pleasure, it's interesting that you would take that away from somebody if your whole thought is spreading the seed. Just really, really fascinating. Anyways, thank you so much. It was really amazing. Well, thank you for your questions. I have something to add. Yes, please. Uh, you made a reference to the public health perspective. Uh, with all the research I've done and, and seeing what's in the literature, it's very clear that uh, virtually all these studies that uh, are done to try to find a benefit are done by uh, investigators from a circumcised culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, and from a psychological perspective, if one is circumcised, one generally has a bias to try to justify circumcision as a good or okay thing to do. And an approach to doing that in this culture is to, is to come up with some kind of study, presumably done by experts, uh, that will show that there's some kind of health benefit here. Uh, well, how can you find a health benefit when in the beginning you're cutting off a normal, healthy, functioning body part? Well, all you can, all, the only way, place you can go when you try to find health benefits is to say, well, it's going to prevent something in the future. Because when you're doing it, the kid's healthy. <laughs> you're not treating anything. It's non-therapeutic, as they say. Uh, so when a circumcision advocate uh, wants to defend this practice and use the system of, let's write a research report about this, do a study, uh, what they find when some people do like these meta-analyses of medical research, what they find is 
a large proportion of medical research, uh, the statistical analysis does not justify the conclusion. Uh, but if the investigators are looking for a particular conclusion, they'll find what they're looking for. Because there are all, all kinds of ways you can change your methodology and do your statistical analysis to come up with the result you want. So again, we have investigators that are going into the research looking for a benefit and finding what they're looking for. And there's a lot of uh, uh, financial support and political support for that type of research. Now, the research on the other side of the question is, well, what's the harm here? Uh, there's very little uh, political and financial support for doing that research. So we end up getting a lot of studies in American medical literature that claim all these benefits. And then there are these organizations that uh, see this research and they say, well, this is what the experts say, and so we'll come up with a statement that uh, wants to uh, uh, take a position on circumcision, for example, because of all this research on it. So it's, uh, it, it's a tricky thing. And what I tell people is, forget what the experts say. Trust your instinct. Uh, remember the images and the sound of the infants that are circumcised. Uh, what did your gut tell you? How comfortable are you with watching something like that? And uh, maternal instinct would, would naturally want to avoid that situation for a child. Go ahead. Just a question. Have there been a substantial amount of uncircumcised experts who have evaluated this question come to a conclusion about it? The uh, short answer is no. And what's interesting is they're not that interested in the subject. It's the circumcised experts that have a motivation to try to support the practice. So we were not sure if uncircumcised experts would be biased in favor of the conclusion that you should not circumcise. Well, well we, don't, we don't have the data for that. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Can I add something? Okay, you want, well, actually, mine isn't going to be very long. Um, I learned a lot tonight. I was sort of in the middle. I have, I'm European-American. My American family is circumcised. My European, my sister's children, etc., brother, are all not circumcised. Do they get along? Yeah, they want two different parts of and um, it's not a subject actually anybody ever talks about. It's, it's not, and I was sort of very, okay, I understand history of the Jewish reasons, for, I mean, the, the um, reasons that lead to circumcision in the Jewish religion. I'm not at all religious, so I, it's hard for me to understand the whole thing anyway, <clears throat> not intellectually, but emotionally. But I tell you this, I was close to tears in this movie because I have, I'm a medical social worker, I have seen one medical circumcision and it was horrible. I still didn't lean onto the side of don't do circumcisions. I felt very strongly if that's a tradition of certain cultures, it's their right. I had nothing to say about that. I mean, people in Native American cultures have done certain things to their faces in African culture, certain things to their bodies, and because it was a mark of whatever tribe, they, they felt affiliated and strongly towards. But emotionally, it was very powerful because these poor babies had nothing to say, and yes, it hurts very, very much, and it's a traumatic thing. But I also was thinking, 
Why is Europe so different? I'm not talking about uh, Jewish uh, traditions now. Why is Europe so different from the United States? And I think it probably goes back to the Puritan heritage. Mm -hmm. This whole thing, oh, it, it can't be pleasurable because blah, 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 blah. Now we have all these health reasons. You don't, you know, you didn't need to circumcise, sorry, because blah, 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 all these reasons. It's, it's a religious thing, in, maybe not conscious, but, but culturally so imbued that people just can't get away from it. Just just a thought. These yeah. are my personal things. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I, I, I want to address a couple of the points that you made. Um, it is very different in Europe. Um, it's very different in Europe for historical reasons. Um, it did start as a Victorian practice before it crossed the Atlantic and became an American practice, and it in fact had influence everywhere where the British Empire was. So in English-speaking countries, you have a much uh, more recent history of this tradition. Uh, it's not really a tradition, but this sort of practice. Um, but what happened was um, a number of things. First of all, um, the European countries and the English-speaking, well, let's, let's take the English-speaking countries, because it wasn't really ever a mainstream practice in most of Europe. But the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, these sorts of places. Um, the, the UK is a very good example. After World War II, shortly after World War II, there was um, an assessment done. Um, the national health system had been set up, and they made a very simple assessment. They looked at circumcision. They found that for every 100,000 boys that were being circumcised, 16 were dying from circumcision-related com complications. And they said, they did a cost-benefit analysis, and they said, it's just not worth doing this anymore. And I, I think it's, it's very important to note that um, these countries, for the most part, have uh, single-payer health care. Yes, they do. Um, and I think when you have single-payer health care, a cost-benefit analysis of that nature mm -hmm. is just so much more obvious. It's like, okay, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to make a decision about what's going on for the whole country, and if we're finding that, that 16 boys out of every 100,000 that are circumcised are dying from circumcision-related complications, and the, the, the evidence on the benefit side is so flimsy as to not even come close to meeting mm -hmm. the burden of you know, necessity, then we're not going to do this anymore. Um, and I think, but it, it is important to note that while people think of circumcision as a religious practice in this country, and there are minorities for whom that is true, the vast majority of people who are circumcised in this country are not circumcised for religious reasons right. at all. Right. And then you might wonder, well, then why are they circumcised? Mm -hmm. And that's where the, the story gets really strange. Um, because then we have to start reflecting on what it means to be um, living in a post-industrial world in which um, the reasons for um, irrational practices have to be fit into scientific categories. Mm -hmm. you, you need, to, you need to, to speak in science in order for something to perpetuate itself. And that, you know, circumcision um, sort of lends itself beautifully to that as an example because you have over 4,000 studies done on the so-called health benefits of male circumcision. Why? Again, because we need um, we need to parse this scientifically in order for the, the, the practice to be allowed to perpetuate in our society. Questions and comments first. Uh, you know, again, you showed the uh, circumcision ceremony toward the end, and uh, 
that's now I've seen a number of them. Let's say four or so. That would be a fifth. And one thing is, my experience is quite different than what Ron was uh, recounting. I didn't see one. Let's say, call it five times. Uh, I didn't see one time where they bewailed for that long. It was more like they were a little uncomfortable when the diaper, as if the diapers were moved. You know, then they, you know, were complaining like it is in the film, and uh, you know that baby came quiet after a very short time. And I found similar in the ones that I witnessed, as if it's scrape your knee, you'll live to tell. Two minutes later, everything is fine. And uh, so I have a, you know, a different witness than what Ron did. Uh, and also, in terms of uh, sensitivity, sometimes look and say, well, if there is a difference in sexual sensitivity, it can't be too bad. The Jewish people are physically here after thousands of years, and if circumcision damaged sexual sensitivity, we wouldn't be. Wait, uh, why? Well, but the, you, what, whatever sensitivity for fertility is there, or not for sensitivity. Uh, you know, you know, Jews will have children, and uh, right, right. But so that's what I'm saying. Those are two separate questions. Yeah. Whether a Jewish male can be fertile is a separate question from whether or not he has a higher level of sensitivity due to a foreskin, right? Could be. But there's enough there. It's not as if you know there's such a clash of sexual destruction of sexual sensitivity that there's uh, you know, that the population hasn't persisted. Well. Yep. Yeah, but that's like the you Jewish could, you could ablate sexual sensitivity. Whatever one can discuss. Or, but about you it. could ablate sexual sensitivity and still have the population continue. So I don't right. think that that's a fair test of the matter. Okay. But um, there, also, there is... I, I just wanted, if, if I may, um, okay. the, when you were talking about the, you know, scraped knee or whatever, did you feel that the baby in my film was sort of not really experiencing pain or not going through a very traumatic event? Okay. Put it this way. Uh, you may have seen a lot more than I have on that film, so uh, I couldn't tell you like if you saw something different that was on the film. But answering what I saw on the film, yeah. it looked like, you know, let's say, the baby was sent after the ceremony was over, uh, Dr. Marks picked him up and, and the father gave him to the mother, and when his mother was holding him, he was quiet. And that was very soon after the ceremony. He was quiet, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he wasn't in an extreme amount of pain. We actually know now, scientifically, that a lot of babies, um, after circumcisions, go into shock. What I witnessed in both what I saw and in my own four or five that I have seen, I saw a different, a different picture, one that the baby recovered from, and you know, I saw the a lot of those babies the next day and so on. So all I'm saying is my witness is different. Okay. Uh, the question that comes out to it is, a lot of it is say, what you said, I feel that, and that triggered something. A lot of the discussion is, I feel that. Uh, trying, and even you said like, do a gut feel. In terms of scientific evidence, I've seen literature on one side, I've seen literature on the other, and you know, some defective reasoning. I mean, I've certainly looked at a couple of 
anti-circumcision professional articles and looked at that and said, oh, uh, in terms of peer review kind of thing. And you know, get the idea that uh, certainly the anti-circumcision that I looked at, a lot of times there's a conclusion and the study is to come up to support the conclusion as against the other way around. And I've seen it on both sides. Question is, I get very sensitive to something like that where there's much more heat than light in the discussion. I mean, I'm triggered a lot of times by the abortion issue, by same-sex marriage, for the same reason, that there's a lot of heat and a lot of things expressed, and you know, a lot of the light gets doused by all of that. And I guess the question of, have you seen that there's a lot of heat there hiding the light, and if so, why? What's going on, and how can we put more light in this and less heat? Sure. Um, and I, I'm going to respond, and then I'd very much like to hear Jeff and, and Ron's response to this, because uh, I think it's a good question. Um, I think there's a lot of heat around this subject, because we're talking about men's penises. <laughs> and I think um, we're talking about sexuality, and I think we're talking about the things that define us as human beings. And mm -hmm. I think that any time you talk about something that touches on those subjects, um, you need to be prepared to get into a very, very emotional space. Mm -hmm. um, I did make an effort in my film to present um, the uh, scientific data and evidence to the best of my ability on both sides. What I found on the, um, uh, if you will, pro-circumcision side was that um, circumcision proponents for medical reasons seem to constitute a minority among expert opinions in the medical profession. Um, it seems to me, and I showed uh, three interviews with people who had absolutely no reason to tell me that there were no medical benefits. Three physicians, my father, who's a neurologist, um, who's you know a religious person and in favor of circumcision to a certain extent, uh, Dr. Marks, who performed circumcisions, and Dr. Mizell, who performed circumcisions. Um, all three of those medical professionals who have no reason of um, telling me otherwise told me that there are no medical benefits to this procedure. And this was confirmed by my research that the people in the medical community who are the strongest proponents for this are a fringe opinion. And the vast majority of physicians in the world today will admit to you that there are no significant enough medical benefits to recommend this practice routine. Mm -hmm. I also presented evidence on the, um, the sexual effects uh, of circumcision. And I tried to do that in as dispassionate a manner as I possibly could. I talked and I showed slides of the actual nerve endings, the Meisner's core muscles. Um, and to me, that's uh, irrefutable evidence that's been um, sort of uh, reconfirmed over and over since the original uh, Taylor study in the late 90s. Um, uh, right up to 2007, there have been um, scientific studies, and I'm not talking, you know, about this, this is not controversial. Even the extreme proponents for circumcision do not deny that there are high concentrations of mitosis corpuscles in the distal ridges of the foreskin. Mm -hmm. So I tried my best to be um, objective when I approached the data, admit when uh, something I was dealing with went beyond the reach of science, and um, not ignore the ethical side of this. I, I think that. Oh, I'm sorry. 
I'm probably the only person on the panel who's not an intactivist. So I may be biased as well. I think it's interesting that we hear, on the one hand, claims that most of the doctors who analyze this question are circumcised and, by virtue of that, have a bias in favor of circumcision. But we also hear that most of the medical experts who propounded on this say, in fact, that there aren't benefits. So I think what this teaches us is that there are a lot of conflicting signals on this in this debate. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe that's a version of heat. It's really a version of kinetic energy of some sort. Mm -hmm. A lot of conflicting signals. I think the bottom line is to do what maybe philosophers do best, rather than social scientists same way about female circumcision. Absolutely. That if there are reasons to do it, outweigh okay. the reasons not to, then you should you should do it. But as far as that one's concerned, it's a perfect example where I think most of us, we look at the reasons to do it, we look at the reasons not to, it seems pretty compelling that we should not circumcise women in that way. Well, can I, can I comment on that? Yes. So, you know, the Colden-Taylor study looked at the anatomy of the foreskin. And it's documented. We know how, how, uh, what the anatomy is, and most likely why it's the way it is and how it functions. There hasn't been the same type of study done and published for the clitoris and female genitals and documented. But people just accept 
that it's damage and that women don't function well sexually once they've been circumcised. And there is no evidence like the Colden Taylor study that, that documented and proved what the anatomy is and how it functions. That seems odd. I, I, I want to respond to this for a second and then um, I'll, I'll let you. That's a whole other subject. You take it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important. I think the analogy between um, male and female genital cutting is not as um, absurd as some people might think. Uh, I do think there is, uh, there have been studies on the clitoris. One of the very interesting, um, this is a sort of side note, but very important uh, studies found it was um, a 3D ultrasound and they found that the clitoris is actually a much larger structure than had initially been imagined. But that, that supported that women's function remained after they were circumcised. It does, yeah. And the, and the clitoris. It does, as we but know. also in the Colden Taylor study that I referred to, uh, it was called the human prepuce, and they did look at, at, the, at um, the prepuce on the clitoris also. So there, there was some, some of that. Um, but I think what Jeff is saying is really important and I, I, I agree with him. I just, in my analysis of the data, and you know, Jeff, if you think that I've made a mistake somewhere or if you think that my analysis is off, I think it's very clear that the benefits of male circumcision do not equal the problems that it causes. And therefore, it seems obvious to me that it's unethical. So that's, that's where I don't necessarily uh, agree. I mean, I, I certainly, uh, I said I'm not an intactivist. I'm not a circumcision advocate either. Thank God I don't have to be one or the other. So I'm not pro-service by any means. I'm agnostic on it, but I, I'm not. I don't share any of the. Uh, I don't have a leaning in this particular debate. Uh, I, I certainly don't don't need evidence that female circumcision is problematic. I, I can imagine if someone said in a certain society they remove all the tongues mm -hmm. of a society and they claim that it damages taste, but we've never seen any evidence of it. I didn't see a study analyzing the tongue. I said, That's ridiculous. I know the tongue affects taste, I, and we don't need to see a diagram. Uh, and I think we know from introspection the effects of sensitivity. And as Ellie compellingly showed in the film, some people are starting to learn the effects even of male circumcision on sensitivity. I just don't know if the numbers are as high as we would gather from our own introspective or anecdotal evidence in the case of female, uh, of, of female genitalia. But I, I, again, I don't, I don't want to, to call, to presume that the Taylor study is evidence of the problems. It's certainly evidence of an anatomical difference, but as, I, as, as I've already uh, discussed with you and as we've debated uh, before, it is not obvious at this point precisely what the co connection or correlation is between amount of Meissner's corpuscles here and sensitivity here. We know that they're correlated, but we don't know if it's a threshold relationship where after a certain amount you get a lot of sensitivity or if it's a one-to-one -one correspondence, exactly this many corpuscles, exactly this many sensitivums. In fact, we don't have any measure of sensitivity. And I, I, I'm, I'm just going to respond to that because this is where the issue of female genital cutting does come into play. Um, we have a cultural bias in this regard that's based on our conceptions of gender. And I, I want to raise this, this issue to your attention. I think we have a certain um, bias in our culture against um, violence against females versus violence against the males. And our bias is, of course, toward the female. If I showed you a film clip of a man slapping a woman, and I showed you, I just cut to another film clip of the woman slapping a man, I think the first would elicit a revulsion, and the second might even get a laugh. 
And I think that, that that's sort of a, a very simple indicator, but we definitely have a double standard about violence to the male body and violence to the female body. And everything that you've said about the Meisner's corpuscle and the relationship to pleasure, which is very difficult to determine, is absolutely in the exact same way true about female genital cutting. If I cut off the external part of a clitoris, I am not completely removing a woman's ability to feel sexual pleasure. We know that for a fact now. Um, uh, there have been some anthropological studies that even suggest that pharaonic circumcision, the infibulation, the most radical form of female genital cutting, doesn't completely avoid um, sexual pleasure in African women. And we know that because, uh, so you might ask, how is that possible? They remove all of the external genitalia. It turns out, of, again, of course, that there, um, some uh, ero erogenous tissue survives even the most radical form of that practice. And so I would, po I would posit to you that, um, and this isn't to say that we shouldn't be looking at this on both sides. We shouldn't be asking the same question on both sides. But there is no natural and obvious distinction beyond our cultural bias between male and female genital cutting. Really? So yes. that seems to me just that seems that seems to be uh, too strong a statement. So I, I take I, what you're saying. I, I take very seriously and respectfully. Uh, that there are a lot of cultural biases. Uh, I submit to you that we have a different bias when we watch females being pierced from when we watch males being pierced, but it runs the other way. Uh, so I think I think it depends on what you're what you're observing uh, in particular, where where this bias. Where I think the bias that's triggered by clitoridectomy isn't violence against women. It's violence against women's genitalia. Uh, again, with piercing and other things and vaccinating women, we don't have that What's reaction. The but, I don't see it. but the but well, the difference is that we believe, and if you want to convert me to being a pro-female circumcision advocate, I suppose, you know, I'll submit, I'm coming with no dogma, but, but as, it, as it happens, um, we, we have this belief that the clitoris is, is uh, tremendously sensitive, and we get that belief in at least substantial part from the introspective self-reported experiences of many people with clitoris, from what I hear. Now, no, that's that, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's odd. It's it's. It, it, I think that's a case where we can say, okay, the burden of proof is on those who want to say, nevertheless, it's different. Do you want to? Yeah. There's four thousand. There's four thousand nerve endings in the clitoris, and there's twenty thousand in the foreskin. So, so but the question is, you know, you have to, you know, reconsider. I, I just, I just want to respond here because um, I'm in. Let's make it brief. Uh, yeah. We should move on. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm intact, and I can tell you from my experience as an intact man. Yes, it feels good. Uh, pleasure in my foreskin when uh, I'm having a sexual experience feels really good. And so I think that would be the same for me to say that as it would be for a woman to say that she feels pleasure in her clitoris. Maybe we should move on to the next question. Yeah. I'm going to switch subjects. Um, so I just wanted to go back to your question about when things become heated and you talked about um, you know looking at the evidence and being pra pragmatic and I just wanted to say you know say that to my Jewish mother because even if she looked at evidence she would still have her decision made about this and what I wanted to bring up was the question of Jewish identity um, especially for Jews who 
don't live in Israel, um, because I feel like a lot of Jews who are actually very assimilated to the country where they live, specifically America, will not hold on to any Jewish practice. Um, or, or maybe they hold on to some, um, to a certain degree. Um, but the one thing that they do do that, I mean, I, I find, is they circumcise their child. And that's like the one basic thing that makes you a Jew. And I just can't figure out why. Also, it reinforces the whole patriarchal thing. Um, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on why this is like the most important part of a Jewish identity. It doesn't make sense to me at all. And I really struggle with this on a personal level because I think about you know, my future child and what's my Jewish mother going to say and how is their Jewish identity going to be shaped when they live in a culture. I mean, obviously, I would teach them otherwise. But they live in a culture that believes that this is like the basis of, of you being Jewish. And if you don't, then who are you? And I think that that's messed up, but it's a reality. It's a reality. So I have a number of things to say about this. Number one, um, the vast majority of American Jews have their sons circumcised in hospital mm -hmm. with, with no ritual context whatsoever. And ironically, from a religious perspective, what they're doing by circumcising their children in the hospital is preventing them from ever being able to participate in the ritual of law. So in a strange and ironic way, leaving a boy intact is preferable to having him circumcised in hospital. That's just a hmm. cute little observation. But they still may feel you know, that still might be a part of the right. way that they think the, that right. makes and their child of, Jewish. Yes. Jews have a lot of misconceptions about the ritual meaning of circumcision, and as you saw in my film, there's no basis in Jewish law that this makes you, you know, Jewish. Mm -hmm. It's not it, and I tried to emphasize and I talk about how, um, you know, uh, there are zero uh, ritual or religious consequences to not being circumcised. Jewish intact males can do absolutely everything. If you contrast this with something like Sabbath observance, um, a non-Sabbath observant Jew is not able to be a witness at a wedding, is not able to be trusted in a Jewish court of law, is not able to supervise kashrut and make sure that things are kosher. So you have this sort of, you have all these misperceptions kind of going around. Part of the dynamic that goes on uh, around this issue uh, for those who are supportive of circumcision, uh, and this is how the bias gets played out, is to exaggerate the benefit and diminish or ignore the harm. So, for example, in the Jewish community, the benefit is a uh, Jewish boy will be more likely to be accepted. Uh, the greater parents, everybody will support that decision. Uh, so there's fear around considering a decision not to circumcise if you're Jewish. Uh, so I talked with parents who have made this, Jewish parents who have made the decision not to circumcise. And they found that, uh, you know, in, in some instances, you know, there was some friction with, uh, you know, the relatives, but they get over it, you know. And life goes on and people love their grandchildren regardless of whether they're circumcised. <laughs> but when, it, when, when, you can, when a Jewish parent is considering whether or not to do this, that fear gets magnified. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, what will everybody say? Well, I mean, the other part of that is we're not going around advertising the circumcision status of our child. So not mm -hmm. everybody's you know, going to be examining his penis or asking, did you circumcise? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. there's other things to, to think about. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's one side. And then uh, the part where uh, 
the harm gets diminished and partly relates to you know, some of the attention to the sexuality part. Uh, if you're reading a study that claims a benefit for circumcision, you won't see a word about harm. Not one word, because they're looking at the potential benefit. So they're not telling you. Know, if you're going to make a decision, you ought to know both, right? You got, mm -hmm. What are the benefits and what's the harm? Uh, but the recommendations that are coming out of uh, you know, some of these uh, researchers and the people they report to are based on the results of the study and not on, well, what about the other evidence that, that looks at the other side of the coin? So it's, hmm. it's somewhat skewed that way. I, I would add to that that when you spend the time, and this is the more boring part of the subject to me personally, but when you spend the time going through these 4,000 studies, um, certain patterns emerge that are hard to ignore. And I, you know, I, I'm very much on Jeff's side on this about, you know, starting from a clean slate. Mm -hmm. But the, the mere fact that there are 4,000 studies about the health benefits of male circumcision, and there are like a handful of studies that look at the health benefits of female genital cutting practices. I mean, and they're, they're only sort of accidental. It's like we accidentally found that certain populations of women who are circumcised are less likely, we're, we're embarrassed about this finding. We don't really, uh, don't, don't know what to do with this information. Maybe we should be culturally sensitive about this. They're about, I know off the top of my head, I can think of about half a dozen studies like that. But contrast that with 4,000 studies on the, the benefits of male infant circumcision and male circumcision, and it starts to raise, and of course the history that, that Professor Glick talked about in my film of how every generation has a new justification for it. Mm -hmm. You start to wonder about um, the veracity of this, and you're forced to look at more fundamental questions, like why is someone, why are people, why are thousands of people studying the benefits of cutting off a healthy functional part of the human body. Mm -hmm. And maybe we shouldn't, maybe starting from zero isn't starting from, you know, there's a 50% possibility that circumcision is okay, and there's a 50% possibility that circumcision is not okay. Maybe starting from zero is, maybe there should be a burden of proof. Maybe mm -hmm. we should say that if you're going to cut off a healthy body part that's functional and has known functions, that maybe the burden of proof should be on the person who wants to do the cutting, mm -hmm. not the person who argues that you should leave Mm -hmm. What do you think about the that? Yeah. Uh, I, I think that that, uh, again, it depends. I mean, I, I think just keep mentioning piercing. And, uh, and there was, there was uh, there's a science fiction story you can imagine in which people all are born with these minute little tails. And it's, you know, they're there, they're healthy tails, they wag and a lot. But, it's just natural common practice in that society to snip the tails off right at birth. Everyone does it, and it has no adverse consequences. One parent decides, one set of family decides, you know what, we're going to keep the tail. Because it's a part of the body, and yet don't cut. The burden of proof is on cut, um, making an interfering step, on, on interfering with the person's bodily integrity. Let them grow up and be the one tail, first tailed person in the world, history of the world, but then decide on their own. And I think we'd say, well, wait, no. It's, if, unless we see a problem with cutting off a tail, and cutting is, is not, or destroying a part of the body is, is a very dramatic way of putting it. But if we just thought of it as clipping nails that don't grow back, clipping a tail that doesn't grow back, or that's painless, we wouldn't have a problem. The real, the real problem comes with the empirics of this particular debate, which is that circumcision seems to cause harm. It seems to, as you're pointing out, it seems to cause uh, problems 
Uh, and I think if I, if it didn't, if it was like the tale in the example that I just mentioned, uh, just to put the question back, back in this direction, if it turned out that the evidence was, and I've asked you this before, if it turns out that the evidence was in fact that there was absolutely no adverse consequences. Though you are making a decision, and it is irreversible, but it turned out to be absolutely harmless, uh, except for everything else being constant. Your Jewish tradition requires it. You would be uh, exceptional in that community. Would you continue to advocate not doing it? And my response to this, um, and I thought a lot about it since the last time you asked me also, and I, I didn't do such a good job responding to, to the question then. Um, and I'd like to try and do a better job this time. And my response to that is um, this hypothetical situation is irrelevant because the empirical evidence on uh, the effects of circumcision and on the complications that come from it and on the deaths and on the infections and, um, and on the sexual effects, as far as I'm concerned, are in. So, in a, in a similar vein, when, when you hear people talking about the um, ticking, time bomb, ticking time bomb situation with torture cases, um, my response to that is um, these, the, the situation never plays out that way. And so the, 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 the question of how you would respond in a ticking time bomb situation has no bearing on reality. We know empirically, in addition to that, that um, you know, for, and again, this, I don't want to spend too much time on this analogy, but you know, we know that um, people will say anything under torture. Therefore, the information that is garnished from torture is unreliable, and therefore, the hypothetical situation of taking time bomb is irrelevant. And I think that the the, the hypothetical situation in which circumcision didn't cause any harm um, is is equally irrelevant because we know that it does cause harm, and we I can tell you, um, maybe not with the kind of precision I'd like to tell you what the harm is, but I can definitely point out uh, a certain number of children are going to die every year from this practice. Mm -hmm. um, I can tell you about the sexual effects of it by immobilizing the penis and getting rid of the most sensitive part of the penis. Um, and so for me, um, I just don't, you know, even if I would, like as in the ticking time bomb situation, I, I might accept in the ticking time bomb situation that you have to torture. But in reality, and the reality that we know and that we live in, that's not the way things work. I agree. And what you said about the tor torture case is actually very, very much mirrored in, in a lot of great philosophy on that issue. Uh, I would ask you then, do you think that there is no harm in not circumcising a child uh, whatsoever? Is, is, that, is, is the harm entirely on one side? For a particular child in our system, and is there no harm in? No, in I would not say refusing the service. I would say that there are certain forms of social harm that would that uh, a child um, that that it must be admitted a child may suffer as a result of being different in a circumcising culture, for example, or in a you know in a faith community in which this is almost universally practiced. I, I'm not denying that. Um, that shame or you know feeling different can be construed as harm and may indeed be, be a form of harm. What I'm saying is that that by no means um, gives uh, any kind of weight against all of the things that I'm talking about. So if we're weighing this up and we come to the conclusion that you know all the things, if you accept what I'm the empirical case that I make about the realities of circumcision. Mm -hmm. You accept all the things that I'm saying about the complications and the sexual effects. 
then just as Raja Hawani said in the film, the mere fact that someone feels shame from the fact, the fact that they're not circumcised in and of itself is not a sufficient uh, weight to, um, to uh, counteract all of the other problems. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to another uh, Can we quick? Uh, around the social uh, aspect. Um, in the course of writing my book, Circumcision and the Hidden Trauma, I had interviews with um, some parents and some young children. And there was one young boy who was the only boy in his class who was not circumcised. Okay, so the conventional wisdom of parents would think, well, this guy must have got teased a lot and feels terrible about being the only one. Uh, as it turns out, he feels sorry for all the other boys in the class that are circumcised mm -hmm. and is very glad that he's not like them. So, so how did this happen? Well, I talked to his mother. <laughs> and this is, he's eight years old, telling me how he feels about the other kids. Uh, when he was five, his mother told me, uh, she talked to him about circumcision. And she told him, uh, well, this is what happens to a lot of other boys your age. They cut off the foreskin. And he was horrified to hear about that. Uh, and that's, that's a gut reaction from a child. It's, so she explained to him what the cultural practice was, and this is, this is what he's going to witness at some time in his life. All these, these other boys are going to be missing a foreskin. So he, he thanked his parents for not cutting his foreskin off, was really glad to have his foreskin. And if he does get something mentioned to him by a classmate, he'll simply, simply say something like, well, you had this piece when you were born, but it was cut off. And that's the end of the conversation. I mean, the, the boy doesn't have a response to that, the, the kid that's the circumcised boy. So again, he, he, he was able to talk about that with his mother, uh, understand what the situation was, and, and feels fine about the way he is. Mm -hmm. So there's no, there's no necessity for a boy in the minority mm -hmm to necessarily feel bad about his status. Education is such a good antidote to shame. I don't think shame is useful. Yeah, I, I would just point out also that um, any sense of shame is probably going to be something different in the decade and a half, two decades before they're an adult and sexually active. So at that point, you know, that'll be 20 years later, there will be different you know, different mores in society, there may be a very different proportion of people who are circumcised at that point. So what you think is going to be you know, natural versus embarrassing for your child who is an infant now is not necessarily a very good prediction of anything that's going to happen when they're an adult. You, you really don't know much about that. So. It's a very good point, too, and I wonder what things are going to be yeah. like in 20 years, because right now the circumcision rate in this country is hovering at about 50%. So you're going to end up with a sort of bimodal population where you have about half that are circumcised and half that are intact. And I, I, I think that as the numbers continue to decline, that side of the harm of not being circumcised, if you will, which I do accept, I think that I don't want to dismiss that. I just don't think it's, it's in any way sufficient to recommend circumcision. But I think that that also will decline with time as the majority of the population stops the practice. And that may also, it may also change as um, intercontinental travel becomes more popular. So you know, if our parents lived in a society in which they would rarely see someone who wasn't an American if they were born in America, that's 
not so much true now, and it's very unlikely to be true for children growing up who are infants now. So uh, they, they may live or normally be among people who come from European countries where, this, where circumcision is very rare today. So. All right, I'll go, thanks. Um, so I have a, a sort of a comment slash question. We'll see how it comes out about the Jeff's uh, hypothetical situation of, well, if there were no, you know, if it turns out there are no sort of physiological harm, would you still, would Ellie still crusade against circumcision? And so the question that I have is, is, is in, um, in, in our society, which is, has, has certain values of democracy, of, of, uh, of the value of individuality, is, this, is, there, is there an element of autonomy about the state of your genitals and, and that, that you know, very basic composition of your genitals that, that, that is, a, you know, is an inherent social harm um, in losing control over your body in that way? Mm -hmm. yeah, I I think it's a very interesting question, and it's, it's certainly uh, something to be given intrinsic weight. It becomes difficult in the case of parents and children for the following reason. Parents are unfortunately stuck in the position where they will forcibly and inalterably affect their child with almost every action and inaction. So the difference between passively allowing a child to become something and interfering to let them become something else doesn't even exist for most cases of parenting. Parents must go out of their way to take the positive of educating their children and even disciplining their children, which is in many ways a much stronger interference and a much more permanent one than, well, it couldn't be more permanent circumcision, but it's quite intense interference. Uh, disciplining your children, uh, imposing them to punishment and suffering, educating them in a very particular way that will permanently alter their cognitive and psychological and, and uh, informational identities for the rest of their lives. And yet, not doing so is criticized, a lot more so than doing so. Uh, it's because parents are in the unique situation where uh, not doing is doing. Uh, whatever you do is going to affect your children. So it's, it's a, they have much more leeway to decide is this interference more beneficial than harmful or more harmful than beneficial? Uh, but interference is inevitable with either decision for most dichotomous decisions that parents have to make. Uh, and I think that circumcision, therefore, is just subject to the same analysis. We talked about social harm here. And it's a very interesting, I, and I'm, I'm reassured that everyone's discussing social harm because I don't know what the what the cost-benefit ultimately is. Is the social harm that high? Uh, Elliot's presented very uh, uh, compelling evidence that it might not be. Uh, is the social, or, and so is, so is Dr. Goldman, is the social harm high enough that it outweighs negligible medical? How, how negligible is the medical and physiological? It's, it's, it's a cost-benefit analysis, but parents can't afford to uh, sanctify one decision because it's interfering with a kind of autonomy of the child as opposed to another decision because it's not. Uh, that's just a luxury parents unfortunately don't have, don't have. All right, I want to thank everyone so much for a lively question and answer session. Thank you so much for participating. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www dot cut the film dot com. <laughs>